0: The Great Merger Movement was an event that took place primarily in the United States from around 1895 to around 1905, though it continued in a less dramatic and frantic fashion. Until around 1929. During this period, more than 1,800 companies were sucked up into other companies through consolidation, meaning there were nearly 2,000 fewer companies in the United States after the dust settled, and the ones remaining were all larger than before, made up of a Voltron like combination of previously smaller entities that joined together to become a more powerful, unified whole. The idea here was to create larger business entities that would be capable of clobbering their competitors through the benefits of economies of scale, access to a larger number of compatible patents, and the soft power of increased brand recognition amongst their existing and potential customers. It's theorized that this merger mania was the consequence of the Panic of 1893, which, interestingly, began with a wheat crop failure in Argentina expanded with a gold run on the U.S. Treasury and ended with four years of economic depression that impacted all U.S.-based industries and set into motion a realignment of the U.S. political system that, among other things, meant Republicans would control the White House for 28 of the next 36 years." So the idea here is that, spooked by the very recent economic depression, business entities wanted to create unbreakable advantages within their space, which would in turn allow them to set overall higher prices on their goods and services. They had just spent four years charging lower prices due to the depression, and some of them were done holding on by a thread, and they wanted to be able to expand and build up their economic reserves for a while in case something like that happened again in the future. Now, unfortunately for them, their efforts seem to have had the opposite effect. As they scaled up and took more power and increased their prices, more players decided to enter their industries due to the temptation of those higher prices, of the riches that could be earned by investing in that space. So in their efforts to eliminate competition, they actually created more. And those new, smaller entities followed suit and partnered with and bought each other creating bigger, more serious competitors. That didn't stop some of these entities from growing even larger, however. This setup helped companies like DuPont, U.S. Steel, and General Electric, among many others, create quasi-monopolies within their industries, as small became medium-sized, which became larger, which then became massive-scale businesses. Their expansion allowed them to wield increasing amounts of power in their own industry, but also adjacent industries and in politics, which allowed them then in turn to maintain their quasi-monopolies despite the periodic popular demand for regulation that might shrink them down to size. These quasi-monopolies they'd built were really just a more formalized version of the cartel system, That already existed within these industries beforehand. Cartels emerge when a group of companies get together and decide to price-fix a particular product. OPEC is a well-known oil cartel, for instance, and they, together, control the majority of the world's oil reserves. As a result, if they work together, they can essentially set the price of oil pretty much worldwide, There's very little real competition to help keep prices low if they decide they want to keep those prices high. That's what we had here, too, more or less, in all of these industries. But they often decided to formalize these relationships by acquiring each other's assets because cartels were inherently unstable. They would set the prices together and make all kinds of gentlemen's agreements, but almost invariably, someone would see an angle or an opportunity and would betray the others to capture market share or gain some kind of advantage. Knowing that this type of betrayal could happen made the other cartel members more likely to betray their cartel colleagues. And cartel after cartel crumbled because of the possibility of betrayal That was an ever present specter over their dealings. Mergers and acquisitions were a way out of this, and they were one way to achieve what's often called horizontal integration within an industry. They would take over essentially all of the companies producing their product, and as a consequence, would own all of the steel refineries, for instance. That would give them huge economies of scale, meaning they would be able to produce more steel for less, and at cheaper prices, and at higher quality, because they had all the steel-making stuff they needed, and far fewer competitors than might have existed otherwise. Some of these mergers and acquisitions, though, resulted instead in what's called vertical integration. Horizontal integration involves controlling all resources within the same level of production, all of the steel refineries or all of the car lots, for instance. Vertical integration means controlling assets on different levels of the production chain within a particular industry. So that would mean owning some of the mining infrastructure that allows for the production of raw materials, owning a couple of steel refineries, owning a fleet of trucks used to deliver both the raw material ingots and the processed steel, Owning a company that processes that steel into cars, owning a car shipping company, owning a couple of car lots, and maybe even owning a marketing company that helps you brand and sell the cars to consumers. Now, both horizontal and vertical integration can be a very valuable and powerful move for these companies, but it's not always beneficial for consumers. And that is why governments tend to regulate anything that smells like a monopoly because it could take away some of the much-vaunted benefits of capitalism as it's practiced today. Within the European Union, market share is used as a gauge to determine whether a horizontally integrated, vertically integrated, or both company is becoming too dominant, if they've become, in short, a monopoly that is harmful to the common market. This is a tricky thing to prove, though, in part because of the soft terms that are being used, and in part because you can argue, and big companies can afford to argue more forcefully and eloquently than most because of the legal teams that they can afford, but you can argue that industries differ, time periods differ, and that one's dominance within a field isn't necessarily harmful in the sense that the law is watching out for. Within the U.S., the Herfindahl-Hirschman Index, or HHI, is typically used to measure the size of a particular company within their industry to determine whether or not a harmful monopoly has formed. The HHI takes stock of all firms within a particular market and then designates fractions to each company inside it, though sometimes their math is limited to the top 50 players in that field for simplicity's sake. So there is a whole sum of one representing the entire field of, let's say, steel production, and a particular producer of steel has an HHI score of 0.25. That means that they and their holdings make up approximately 25% of the entire steel industry, which by most measurements is not dominant, even if it is big, and therefore they are not a monopoly. It should be noted that the HHI also makes use of what's called a concentration ratio and a few other adjustment tricks, which allow the final number to include data from non-monetary considerations. So even when companies are dominant through their relationships and integrations, rather than just their bank account size, this measurement, in theory, should still give them approximately the right score for a company's influence weight within their industry. But increasingly, large business firms do not fit neatly within just one industry. Where would you put Apple, for instance? I think you could easily broadly call them a tech company, but they also have a music wing and they make TV shows. They broadcast, in other words. They also distribute video games. They have a news app through which they curate journalism. What would you call Amazon? They sell things, they're a marketplace, but they also make a huge portion of their revenue from their AWS online services, meaning they're an internet services company as well. But they also stream music, and they have consumer and business-oriented cloud services, and they operate a shipping and delivery network, and they own a grocery store chain, and they make their own in-house products, and the list goes on and on. What I want to talk about today is mergers and acquisitions, and alongside that, I want to talk about scale both up and down, and how scale influences the type of work that we do, and how we approach that work. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. Let's Know Things is an independent, listener-supported show If you're enjoying what you hear, consider becoming a contributor. One of the easiest ways to contribute is to become a patron on Patreon. If you go to patreon.com slash you can set up a monthly contribution of however much makes sense for you and your financial situation. Contributions of any size are very much appreciated and will gain you access to, among other things, the discussions that take place over there on a weekly basis. You can also contribute via Venmo and PayPal and a few other payment processors as well if you care to. Information about that at letsnotethings.com. But also super valuable are contributions of the non-monetary variety. Leaving a review up on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this show, whether it's on your Alexa or Google Home device or on Spotify or some other purveyor of podcasts, leaving a review is super helpful as is sharing the show with a friend or with your social network of choice. Word of mouth is the absolute best way for a show like this to spread, and I appreciate every and all effort in this regard. Thank you for that. All right, let's get back to the show. ¶¶ The article I want to start with today comes from Business Insider, and it's entitled, There is a 40% chance Apple Will Acquire Netflix, according to City. The lead for this piece is right there in the headline. City, or more properly, Citigroup, the company behind Citibank, but more relevant in this case, a multinational investment firm, sometimes makes predictions about stock market goings-on to the press. They are, after all, a respected and well-moneyed entity in that space, and so when they say something about mergers and acquisitions, people pay attention because it could impact their own stock holdings. In this instance, among other predictions, they estimated that there was a 40% chance that Apple would acquire Netflix. Apple is a huge tech company with tendrils that extend into a variety of other industries, including, and this is what's most relevant For this story, an increasing focus on the production of original content they can send to their devices, their iPhones, MacBooks, Apple TVs, and so on. There are two major media industry plot points that led to this prediction, though they take place in very different portions of the media industry. The first is that if the tax cut being pushed by the Trump administration here in the US goes through as it's written, amidst all the horrible pork that's been attached to it over the past several months, much of which even those voting for it don't know about because of the way in which this tax cut has been railgunned through the political process. But within it, there's one relatively clear change made to the way corporations are taxed. Namely, their tax burden will be substantially reduced. And in addition to that broad cut, there will also be a one-time tax holiday that would allow U.S.-based companies to repatriate money that they're currently holding overseas. Now, this may not make a lot of sense if you don't keep up with tax law and the lengths to which corporations will go to avoid paying taxes, but the short explanation is this. Corporations, like human citizens, pay taxes here in the U.S. Those in charge of corporations also have a fiduciary responsibility to their stockholders to earn and keep as much money as possible meaning they are legally obligated to do this and as a logical consequence of that they are legally obligated to figure out ways to avoid paying as many taxes as possible apple being a corporation and a huge one with a fantastically large cash reserve is doing this just like all the other corporations They've got gobs of money they've been keeping overseas, tucked away in banks and other holdings. Because if they bring it into the U.S., where they can reinvest it in U.S. assets, they will have to pay taxes on it. And those taxes would be substantial. Apple has around $252.3 billion in cash stashed away overseas. And being able to bring that cash into the U.S. without consequence, and being able to pay a lower rate on it from that point forward, That's huge. Usually, there would be a 15.5% tax just to bring the money back into the country, which in this case would be around $39 billion right off the bat to get that cash into the U.S. And on top of that would be the standard U.S. taxes, which are currently 35% for corporations, but which under the new tax law would be reduced to 21%. That means paying just under $53 billion in taxes instead of over $88 billion. Which sounds pretty good for Apple because, I mean, there's a lot that you can do with $35 billion. And this, I should probably mention, is one aspect of new tax law that I actually think is a decently smart move. There are a lot of other components that are, to me, nonsensical as policy, and they only really make sense as a paying of debts to lobbyists and wealthy political donors. So viewed through the cynical lens of politics as usual, much of what's in this tax law makes perfect sense, though a whole lot of it is borderline insulting to non-super wealthy non-corporation taxpayers. It's remarkable how much BS they've managed to cram into one bill. But reducing those corporate taxes and, importantly, reducing the taxes on patent-related income to 13.1% down from 21% makes it more likely that many U.S.-based companies will reduce their reliance on overseas banking trickery, which kind of defines this space right now because, again, fiduciary responsibility. They have to avoid taxes where they can, legally. Reducing that tax rate will incentivize these companies to bring that money back into the U.S., And because this same bill increases U.S. taxation on overseas holdings of this kind to that same amount, 13.1%, there is far less incentive to globally sprawl in the way that a lot of U.S.-based corporations do today. Even when we disagree with most of what's happening within a particular party or as a consequence of a specific law or policy, It's important to give credit where credit is due, and this is one portion of this tax law that I personally think makes sense, though there are certainly good arguments to be made to the contrary as well. In any case, that potential import of that huge lump sum of money that is currently stored overseas by Apple is one half of this story. The other half is Disney's announcement back in August of 2017 that they would be developing their own online streaming service something much like Netflix, followed by an announcement during their earnings call in November that they would be developing unique original content for that streaming service. Meaning that just like Netflix and Amazon Prime and Hulu, Disney will be getting into the made-for-streaming game. And this is not just any old competitor. This is the company that owns Pixar, Marvel, Lucasfilms, which is the company behind Star Wars, alongside their own multifaceted and very well-known Disney empire. And the news of this streaming service came to light even before it was made public that Disney has been in talks to acquire 21st Century Fox, the corporate entity behind the TV networks FX, National Geographic, and Sky, not to mention Marvel offshoots like the X-Men, and other Fox properties like Avatar and The Simpsons. In light of all of this, there have been murmurings that perhaps Apple will aim high and target Disney for acquisition, and the number of speculators who support that assertion has gone up since the 21st century Fox dealings have come to light, And as long as antitrust regulators don't sink it, declaring it to be a harmful monopolistic move, it does seem like that deal with Fox will be happening, with Disney acquiring essentially everything they own except for the Fox News portion of the Fox Media empire. But the winning money in terms of next-step Apple acquisitions is still on Netflix for most industry experts because of Apple's history with mergers and acquisitions. They tend to aim for the Pepsi in an industry that they want to enter, not the Coca-Cola. They want the second or third best, the one that doesn't have a massively overvalued price tag, because they know, being Apple, they can quickly fluff up the value of anything that they bring under their corporate aegis. So rather than paying out the ears for a home run like Disney... They could instead buy a company like Netflix that has solid infrastructure and intellectual properties of their own, but which publicly at least is a somewhat dimming star, at least at the moment because of that new perceived competition with Disney, which could dramatically decrease a buyout's asking price. They're looking pretty good. Experts from Citi estimate that Apple would only require about a third of the cash that they would be repatriating into the U.S. to purchase Netflix, which would leave them plenty left over to make other strategic acquisitions or to pay down debts and buy back shares of their stock, which is how they typically spend their spare cash under normal circumstances. Historically, Apple has bought out companies that make things they believe would bolster what they're already selling, or companies that operate in spaces that they would like to enter. There's a list of all their public acquisitions on Wikipedia, there are nearly 100 of them, all told, and the spaces in which these companies that they acquired operate range from music recognition, as with their recent purchase of the app Shazam!, to database technologies, as with their 2015 purchase of the company FoundationDB. Apple's pace of acquisitions has been picking up since 2013, and they're not the only tech company that's been moving at a faster rate in this regard of late. Alphabet, the parent company of Google, has made over 200 acquisitions, and most of them since around 2010. And Disney, the company that Citi thinks Apple might try to purchase if they don't purchase Netflix, They own their namesake studio, and the accompanying theatrical group, and the studio service company, a music group, various resorts, retail sector companies for their games and apps and products like stuffed animals and t-shirts, but they also own Marvel, Lucasfilms, ABC, A&E, and ESPN. And under each of these sub-assets are sub-sub-assets. There are numerous individually branded studios providing production services, and numerous companies producing branded apps. There are dozens of Disney resorts around the world, in addition to the dozens of Disney theme parks. Alongside their ownership of ABC, they also own 30% of Hulu. Local TV stations like WLS7 in Chicago and WPVI6 in Philadelphia, they own 80% of the Canadian Discovery Channel. Even Netflix is getting into the acquisitions game, having made their first in mid-2017, buying out a company called Miller World a comic book brand that owns some tantalizing intellectual property for those wanting to make superhero movies. Among others, Mark Miller, the namesake creator behind Miller World, has created the Kick-Ass series, a dark take on the Marvel character Wolverine called Logan, and the very British spy and fashion-focused Kingsman franchise. In short, all of these companies, even the relatively newer, smaller ones, are arming themselves for a showdown, and the arms, in this case, are other companies. Just like the oil and steel companies from the age of the Great Merger Movement in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, corporations today are bolstering their vertical and horizontal infrastructures as a latent part of the way they do business. The industries they are in have matured to the point where that is the main value add, as opposed to industry-upsetting innovation, which tends to be the way that things operate in less mature industries. Which brings me to the consolidation curve. The consolidation curve is a concept that was posited in the Harvard Business Review back in 2002, in an article about a study that analyzed the life cycle of 1,345 large mergers that took place during the preceding 13 years. What they discovered in studying these mergers is that there is a four-step process that most industries go through after they form or become deregulated, meaning once the triggering technologies or discoveries have been made available, And importantly, have also been made legal in some way by regulators. So this curve would apply to the smartphone industry after it emerged in 2006, even though the requisite technologies already existed before the first iPhone came to market. This also applies to things like the development of airlines and plastics and types of shoes. The requisite materials and know-how to make sneakers were available before sneakers became a thing that was available for sale. This curve began at that latter point, when whatever we're tracking is made available to the public by some business or other vendor. The first stage of the consolidation curve is the opening stage. At this point, there's usually just one entrant in this space, offering something new and untested. It's been deregulated in the sense that they are allowed to sell it, but most people don't know why they should care about this new thing quite yet and that one company has what amounts to a monopoly on what they're offering as a result of that lack of demand and lack of competition. So while Gatorade was developed in 1965, it didn't have any real competitors until the 80s. Before then, most companies simply couldn't be bothered to try to compete. They didn't see the potential in the sports drink industry quite yet. A few small competitors might emerge later during this primary stage, but typically none are very big and none are dominant. The second stage is scale. It's here that major players begin to form, or aggregate, and they soak up as many of the smaller players as possible. The data show that the top three players in an industry at this point will typically own 15-45% to of the market apiece. New entrants that emerge and bring something new to the table, be it an innovation or a new segment of the market, are typically bought out or crushed by the bigger players. Going back to Gatorade, they were bought by the Quaker Oats Company in the 80s after it had been demonstrated that there was a worthwhile market for this product. Quaker Oats in part bought Gatorade to compete with similar products that were owned by Pillsbury. The Quaker Oats Company was then purchased by PepsiCo in 2001 as part of this market's stage three. Now stage three is focus. During the scale phase, the companies involved compete tooth and claw to take all they can and then they salt the ground around them so no competitors can emerge outside the two or three main players. When they arrive at the focus stage, they've cleared the area and are more concerned with reinforcing their assets and outgrowing their main competition. At this stage, each of the players will usually own between 35 to 70% of the total market share though there will still generally be 5 to 12 companies involved, most at far smaller levels. And it's at this stage where you see big, brash, swashbuckling gambles intended to usurp the existing hierarchy that emerged during the previous stage. So you might see the second and third largest mobile phone companies merge in an attempt to take on the first-place contender within their industry. You might see big giants in one industry, say search engine optimization, scoop up a small but growing company in an adjacent industry, say, online video streaming, for what seems like way too much money as a means of accumulating an insurmountable lead over their competitors. This was the case with Google when they bought YouTube back in 2006. It was a move calculated to give them a massive lead over their search engine and ad placement rivals by providing them with stable footing in the video ad space, before anyone else was making serious moves toward the same. Going back to Gatorade, during the second stage, the scale stage, Gatorade was already expanding beyond their initial US market into Canada, the UK, and parts of both Asia and South America. During the focus stage, they expanded worldwide and formulated a new, low-calorie version of the drink, to expand their market share even further. They also came up with regional variations in flavors and outmarketed their smaller regional competitors. The fourth and final stage of this curve is called balance and alliance. At this point, the industry in question is mature enough to have just a few titans left, with one usually owning 70 to 90 percent of the market. Here, the big players form strategic alliances with each other sometimes to maintain growth, and sometimes to hamstring new entrants who want to carve out a piece of the pie for themselves. Notably, this is not a stage that companies eventually progress through. This is the end stage for any company in any industry that even roughly follows this path. Here they stay, grappling with other titans, doing what they can to remain relevant and competitive, and to expand their base, their economic and asset foundation, though generally they do so at a slower relative rate than before. And because they're always trying to put out new root systems to expand their foundations ever further to support their ever-growing bulk, like expanding the base of a pyramid, they're also constantly engaging with each other in different ways, sometimes as allies, sometimes as enemies, sometimes as both at the same time. Samsung and Apple have a supplier-customer relationship even as they sue each other constantly over patent infringement claims. This is the nature of stage four. Companies that do not play the game tend to shrivel up and get eaten by those that do. Now, this isn't contained in the write-up about this curve in the Harvard Business Review, but I would add that it's at this stage that these corporate giants are most vulnerable to smaller insurgents, to all the little barbarians at the gate that want to take them down and drink their milkshake. It's what you might call the Death Star Syndrome. They become these hulking beasts that are too big to notice some vital flaw in their plans. And before they know it, some little tiny ship comes in and pew-pew-pews them to death. That's what it looks like when, for instance, a company like the young Apple Computer Company introduces a consumer-friendly personal computer. Around the same time, the young Microsoft introduces their Windows operating system and Microsoft Office suite of software. These dual innovations upended IBM's stranglehold on the computer industry, which is significant. IBM at the time was often called Big Blue because they were the company in computers. They were the only company anyone took seriously and these two small fry entrants knocked them off their perch. By 1994, about a decade after the release of the original Windows operating system and the first Macintosh personal computer, IBM posted an $8 billion annual loss, which at the time was the biggest ever in U.S. corporate history. What we see happen time and time again is a business entity becomes so big and comes to have so much to lose that in trying to reinforce their position as the dominant player in their industry, they create the very circumstances that eventually lead to their downfall. Sometimes this takes the shape of corporate greed or arrogance, but more often, it's their inability to move with agility once they've put on all that extra bureaucratic weight. When you have 40,000 people working for your company, you're not going to move as quickly as a company with 40 people on the books. There are significant advantages to being the big player in any space, but managing such a beast is more cumbersome. Communication slows down, and you have far more liabilities than you did before. You can't necessarily take the same types of risks, and there are almost certainly more hands in the pie, more people making decisions and holding conflicting views on what should happen next and how. Maybe you have fiduciary responsibilities to shareholders that you didn't have before which can also seriously limit your options, focusing you on one metric, that of making money, above all others. The predilection to lock down a particular industry also creates the technological climate for innovation. When you find that you can't develop within a particular space, like, let's say, within the computer industry that was built by IBM and defended tooth and claw by IBM to keep newcomers from entering it, what can you do with your desire to build computers? Maybe you build in another direction instead. Maybe you focus on aspects of the industry that are currently too small to be noticed by that titan that looms above you. There are several ways you could rationally view this cycle of consolidation. To me, it's a little bit sad, because I hate to think that the companies I respect who make products I enjoy, and in which I find a lot of value, will likely at some point hit the next stage in this cycle and inextricably move toward being a scary old giant, stomping around on anything new that might threaten the monetary foundation that it's carved out for itself. On the other hand, it's also kind of reassuring to know that even in spaces that seem locked up and innovationless, frozen in time... Spaces that are depressingly powerful and stagnant, but on which we rely in some way, nonetheless. There's still motion. There are still things occurring. They're likely just below the surface, so we can't necessarily see them without looking really hard, and even then, we won't necessarily know what we're looking at, and which new ideas will eventually grow into something worthwhile. But they are there, growing in the shadows. New things will one day rise up to challenge the powerful incumbent, and perhaps even introduce an entirely new industry, a new consolidation cycle as part of that process. There is a bit of a counter movement taking place right now that I think has some potential to, if not break that cycle, at least present a viable alternative to it for people and businesses to consider. The term right-sizing is often used as a corporate-speak euphemism for firings and downsizing, but it's also used to describe this counter-movement that I'm talking about. The idea is that you needn't scale infinitely to run a successful business. You needn't find investors, you needn't hire a bunch of people, or any people at all, to create something of value and make enough money from that thing you've created or are creating to live a good life. One of the more well-known proponents of this concept is a man named Jason Fried, who, among other things, is the author of the book Rework and the founder of the web app company Basecamp. Basecamp was formerly called 37 Signals and served as the housing company for multiple business-centric web-based applications. But in 2014, they decided to rescale to right-size their company, selling off their secondary apps and focusing entirely on their main and most popular application. Basecamp. They renamed the company to suit that restructuring, and today often speak and write about the benefits of right-sizing, of not scaling just for the sake of scaling. Those who are proponents of right-sizing often list wanting to do better work among the reasons they have for taking this particular approach to things. Rather than simply wanting to avoid the complexities inherent in scaling up, And rather than wanting to avoid that consolidation cycle that sucks in most corporate entities at some point during their lifespan, they also really want to focus on doing one or a few things really well. And that, in their estimation, requires that they say no to a whole lot of other opportunities, including the potential for constant growth. This perspective seems to be more common amongst independent business people. Freelancers, in particular, at least compared to those running traditionally structured businesses. I wanted to make this point, though, because the number of freelancers has grown astoundingly fast over the last 10 years, to about 53 million people in the U.S. as of late 2016. That's around a third of the total U.S. workforce. That number is expected to grow even more quickly in the next 10 years, with some workforce experts predicting that more than half of the total U.S. workforce will be freelancing by 2027. Now, some quick caveats regarding those numbers. The studies that they're based on are not great studies, and the entities providing those numbers are companies like Upward and groups like the Freelancers Union, so they are not exactly unbiased observers. They have a vested interest in a larger freelancer population, and though I don't think anything was rigged to favor higher numbers, I do think the way the numbers were gathered and the way that they're presented leaves something to be desired. Speaking of which, there's a huge difference between freelancers earning tens of thousands of dollars per project, doing specialized work for big corporations, and freelancers who are part of the gig economy, driving an Uber for what amounts to minimum wage. These are both technically freelancers, but since we lack the vocabulary for greater granularity in what we mean when we are having this discussion, we also lack credible data telling us what a freelancer-heavy future will actually look like in terms of income, in terms of lifestyle, and everything else. So keep that all in mind when thinking about or discussing this topic. But all that said, there does seem to be a trend toward accessible infrastructure, For those wanting to start something new and to do it on the cheap and that's true whether we're talking about flexible work via apps like found in driving for lyft or something more standard but independent like doing freelance design work from home podcasts are actually a great example of this the base level cost of starting a podcast is not high especially when compared to other types of media that have the same potential reach And this is true of blogging platforms, video streaming services, and many other media platforms as well. We are living in an age where many of the same tools being used by huge players in any given space are also available in a very similar form to people who have far fewer resources available to spend on such things. Our powers, in other words, are increasing, which in turn gives us broader and mightier capabilities should we choose to make use of these tools. The fly in the ointment, though, is that many of these tools, especially the ones that are super cheap or free, are owned and provided by these big fourth stage companies, the Apples and Googles and Facebooks of the world. Which means, first, they have a vested interest in squashing anything that might actually come to challenge their dominance. And second, they have increased capabilities in both recognizing those challengers and in squashing them should a future threat emerge within their ecosystem. Having these tools available, I should also mention, makes it less likely that creators will be inclined to break out of those spaces and innovate something truly new. When YouTube is so dominant in the streaming video space, why would anyone try to create a new YouTube when they could just create within YouTube instead? If IBM had been more accessible and had provided such tools to people wanting to create using their infrastructure, We may never have seen a Microsoft Windows operating system. We may never have seen a Macintosh personal computer. These gifts, then, can be viewed as gilded cages. They're truly wonderful and valuable, but they also potentially keep us from innovating in any dramatic way. From struggling as mightily to rework the world to suit our preferences, beyond the templates provided for us by those who make the tools that we use. This is a push-pull dynamic that I believe will define large chunks of the business world in the coming decade. Those up top are trying out new ways to keep from going the way of IBM by insinuating themselves into the very structures of our creative capabilities. They're building and managing the most powerful platforms, and as a result are making themselves essential to the success of many upstarts, which then puts them in a unique position— If and when those upstarts reach a stage where an acquisition or a business style assassination makes sense, it's a modern reworking of the consolidation curve, and it's taking place alongside a modern reworking of the right scaling trend that has flourished as older industries age and before new ones are born. It's anyone's guess as to whether this will stop or tweak the consolidation curve going forward. These changes could mean nothing, or they could mean everything. They could supercharge future changes or keep them from happening almost entirely. It's a useful lens through which to view growth and mergers and acquisitions, though, and through which to view the way that we create and what we aspire to achieve with our Mm -hmm. creations. If you are enjoying Let's Know Things, consider becoming a patron. If you go to patreon.com slash things, you will receive a patron version of this show, which is the same as this version of the show, but it's missing these calls to action where I ask you to contribute. If you're already contributing, I'm not going to double down on that and ask you over and over again if I can avoid it. You also receive access to the discussions that take place over there and a few other bonuses as well so that's worth checking out if you're looking for ways to help support this show. Also super helpful is leaving a review up on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts, or sharing the show with a friend who you think might enjoy it, or with your social network of choice. Any and all means of contribution are very much appreciated. A huge thanks to everyone who has already done so in some way, shape, or form, and thanks in advance if you're considering doing so in the future. The book that I'd like to recommend today is an audiobook, and I believe it's only an audiobook. It comes from the Great Courses series, if you're familiar with those. I got it off of Audible. And it's called Practicing Mindfulness, An Introduction to Meditation. It's by Professor Mark Musi. And this was a really well-balanced book on mindfulness. I have read several books on the subject over the years, and I've been practicing mindfulness to various degrees over the years as well. And this book provided me with some new insights, some new points of view from which to view the subject. And it was also well-balanced in terms of providing ways of looking at things, a bit of history, answering some of the why we do things questions behind aspects of mindfulness, but then also actually taking the listener through a few guided meditation series. And this is something that is non-religious. A lot of religious people practice it, but also non-religious people do. I am not religious, but I find a lot of value in mindfulness. And again, even if you know something about the topic, you will probably take something away from this. This guy is very well-known and well-respected within this field. And even had I not known that ahead of time, it would have been evident from the way that he presented the topic. He's very easy to listen to and clearly very enthusiastic about this subject. So if that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up Practicing Mindfulness, An Introduction to Meditation. It's one of the great course's audio lessons, and it is presented by Professor Mark Musi. You can find out more about me and the work that I do, including a list of the books that I've written at colin.io. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com and you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of Let's Know Things at letsknowthings.com. Feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I am at colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube and pretty much everywhere else. Thank you so much for listening. I am Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week.